Philip Crilly, thank you very much for joining us here on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Thanks very much, Brett. Appreciate the opportunity. A pleasure. So tell me about yourself. How did you get here and what do you make? Well, we make patient-specific uh, orthopaedic and medical devices. My journey has been somewhat long in terms of getting to where we are at the moment and the technologies that we're sort of using today. My original background is in pharmacology, pharmaceutical development, medical affairs for major pharmaceutical companies. So looking at quite early stage technology and commercialising that technology either through an industry partner or through capital raising event with a smaller or medium sized biotechs. So I um, transitioned to biotech companies and mainly been doing a venture capital type role, operating and, and developing uh, new pharmaceuticals and medical devices. So the crossover came sort of with an, a company I created called Equinox Medical and Equinox is focused on orthopaedic implants and really the goal there was to try and bring high quality, you know, specific trauma implant and spine implants to Australia at a cost that was going to be, you know, much better for the average payer. And Equinox has been very successful the last couple of years and that was really my main foray apart from some resolvable stent technologies that I developed and some biomet bio actually the biomaterial space was was a key one actually that sort of brought me there as well. So looking at in terms of biomaterials were for resolvable implants for spinal surgeries and for trauma surgeries. So that was the interface between pharmaceutical as in product development and the actual medical device itself. Okay, so uh, tell us a little bit more please about, uh, you gave a, a speech focused on Hi-Fi Orthopedics. Tell me a little bit about that company and uh, what it does. Sure, so High Fidelity Orthopedics or Hi-Fi Ortho is a company that's really just focused on the software aspects of design. However, you know, as a part of that software focus, there's the practical approach to end-to-end -end production of patient-matched implants. So patient-matched implants being different to custom implants. So a custom implant will be an entirely bespoke uh, medical device based on an individual and recent regulatory changes that, that are happening largely in response to software and technology developments has meant that there is the ability for manufacturers to play a greater role within a defined sphere in terms of the production of medical devices that are specific to patients. So by way of background, previously the surgeon themselves or the medical professional was actually recognised as the manufacturer of the product. According to the regulators, they are the manufacturer. But obviously, increasingly, as the technical complexity of the products has increased and the role of the surgeon is diminished relative to the overall manufacturing process, you know, the regulators had to sort of acknowledge that there was a growing role within certain boundaries for the manufacturer to be more uh, directly responsible in terms of that interaction with patient-matched products. So what I, to boil it back down... Yeah. The surgeons were the manufacturer and now there are new regulations in patient specific rather than custom products So the custom surgeons to the manufacturer. Patient specific, the manufacturer is the manufacturer. However, there are design constraints called design envelopes and those design envelopes are the area in which the manufacturer can play in terms of the design. So it has to sit within approved designs and those designs can then be customised to a certain extent. Now there's as you can already tell, a lot of grey area in between those two things. How can you have something that's both patient-specific but made by a non-health professional? And that's really what's being worked out in the next two or three years is that 
regulatory runway to better define the role of the manufacturer in the pro production of medical devices. A little bit of glossary stuff here because not everybody, as we acknowledged earlier, is a data scientist. Certainly, I'm not. Tell me about a couple of terms you mentioned in your speech. Symbolic AI, machine learning, deep learning, narrow general AI. Maybe just pick a few of them. That's right. Look, I think the key takeaways are that when we talk about AI, we're actually talking about machine learning. And, you know, actual artificial intelligence as the, and these are the physicists speaking, the data scientists that, that work at HiFi, they get very upset when I use a term like AI because mm. it's not, it isn't true AI, which is the realms of science fiction where there's all, you know, complete autonomy and function of, of, a, of a computer and behaviour independent of you know, human input effectively. Right. It's an aspiration rather than a thing. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it makes great reading, right? you know, mm. Isaac Asimov and the rest. But where we are really talking about is things like machine learning, where we use the computing power and processing power of machines to interrogate huge data sets and then using things called algorithms, basically think of it as almost a pathway through which a certain data is interpreted. That algorithm is designed by humans. Sometimes it's designed by computers now. But So the majority of things that we look at when we, we're talking about this design aspect or the automation of this process and interrogation of data is really a deep learning, machine learning process. So when we talk about narrow AI, that's more a performance of a particular task at a high level. And then we talk about general AI, which is really how we use that terminology when we talk about AI and machine learning, mm. that is just allowing a machine to perform a variety of tasks. And those tasks are similar to what a human might do. Okay? And, and that can be improvements in precision, that can be improvements in usually time, and it can be specific use of materials as well. That's sort of how I would characterise those different aspects. Okay, excellent. That's a good bit of clarity before we go much further. Um, you also mentioned in your, your speech something about the AI escaping hype trough or whatever yeah. uh, it won't, won't be the words you use but you know what I'm talking about tell me yeah. about yeah AI doing that and um, you know application to orthopedics following on etc yeah so I mean we talk about the, the hype cycle it's just a terminology and I guess technology that gets bandied about it, it's really where there's a sort of a key breakthrough or a scientific breakthrough and that idea Perhaps cryptocurrency is a good example of that, has really great application. Cryptography has great applications to different things. So AI as a concept is, is great, but there are technological difficulties that weren't envisaged in the ideation then become apparent as you sort of go through the actual processes of implementing specific technologies. So, for example, you'll find inefficiencies in, in systems, you'll find a customer customers don't want certain products or they want certain things that they liked before in the old processes. So I think the thing about AI and machine learning now is that it's sort of the systems that it needed in order to be viable now exist at a, at a, at a greater level. And this is sort of true of scale in particular. So the value of something like a neural network, which is like the, the interpretation of data and the automation of those data processes was always possible for since the 70s, 60s, before then. However, now we have the computing processing power and we also have the large data sets that we can actually... It has a meaningful mm. output now, whereas before it was basically a slide rule and we'd do the yeah. you know, regression analysis calculations manually, which is a pretty tedious process. So it's really moved from that to now practical applications and although Hi-Fi Ortho is sort of at the 
at the pointy end of that adoption, you can visualise how all the, all the key elements are in play to actually make it a viable technology that, that, that has practical uses for patients and surgeons in this instance. Let's say something about the application of machine learning to orthopaedics, what you're doing, what sort of implants are possible, how you're making a better mousetrap. Yeah, that's, um, that's a great way of putting it. So I think part of the, I guess the challenge is there are so many potential applications for, for these sorts of platform technologies that the, you know, really becomes, well, you know, where do you hone in on? For, for example, just specific to medical applications, you could look at orthopedics, orthopedics is dealing with bone fractures or, you know, doing surgical you know, operations for knee replacements, spinal implants, etc. They can be trauma patients that are presenting in an ER after a car accident. So that's a really quite a focused application already. And within that application, you have things that can improve diagnosis. So to allow surgeons to say, okay, this or that problem exists, and you can use you know, AI to help diagnose and take through that process to, to improve the performance of the surgeon more generally. So for example, that might be like a fracture detection if a patient comes in after a car crash and they come in and they can see, uh, you know, using CT scans only and the analytics that then go behind it, for example, with AI or machine learning, to interpret the best course of surgical action for that particular patient. Then we're a little away from that. There's also things more specific that are around sort of bone density detection. Mm -hmm. So that might be an application for, say, osteoporotic patients or older patients. So there's a huge number of patients that develop osteoporosis. So having something that can automate detection of bone density scans, which are very available, can allow for better diagnosis and prediction of fractures in those older patients. And if you can predict fractures, you can try and prevent them. Mm -hmm. So that might be a good application there. And prediction is also another one. You can sort of look at existing medical products, and that's really the space that we're looking at at Hi-Fi Ortho, which is around looking at existing products and how can they be better uh, customised for that individual patient. And are modifications going to be clinically sound? If a patient gets a certain hip replacement, will that be better for them as opposed to another sort of hip replacement or a certain surgical technique being used in that surgery? And overlaid on all of those sorts of features, there's a function of automation, which, which goes into generally useful things like being able to recognise sorts of anatomy on a scan, being able to differentiate between bone and tissue, which is actually quite hard on existing scan. So it's about improving the existing technology we have. And into areas such as implant design and, and instrument design that can flow back from those data information and insights that flow from it. So yeah, that's a few of the, the AI opportunities there, specific to orthopaedics, obviously, but you can see that it's already, uh, the cup cup is very full. Mm. You've got to kind of pick your battles wisely, I guess. That's another problem you have. Yeah, that, that's right. There's a, there's a scope and expertise that, that's required that's quite broad. So yep. a startup company in, in this space, yeah, it has to bring quite a number of uh, skill sets to, to bear. about generative design also mentioned in your speech uh, we were talking about that earlier I've seen a certain mechanical design software company be you know pushed that quite aggressively for quite a number of years and limited uptake in Australia because where do you even apply it so um, tell me about generative design why that's interesting for you guys and what you can do with it 
Yeah, well, it, great question. I mean, generative design is, again, one of these technologies that, you know, there's a lot of hype about it, but then it comes to the practicalities of its use specific to medical devices. And then, you know, you need to take a bit more of a harder look at the technology itself and how applicable or desirable indeed are some of its features. Or is it really a feature over in a number of other features and technologies that need for it to be viable? So what I mean by that is that well, generative design is just, you know, basically it's a form-finding process that uses algorithms and machine learning to drive it, and it tries to find the best possible outcome. And that what you can define best in a number of ways, but typically the way that's been done in medical devices and orthopedic implants is by improving the biomechanical properties of the implant, customising the design, improving fixation, improving blood supply, etc. And that all sounds like great stuff, and it is great stuff, what you tend to get is you can get quite dramatic departures in terms of form from original templates, right? And the template, the origins of the templates to all of the orthopaedic implants come from 70 to 90 years of surgeons using stuff. It works pretty well or it doesn't work well and then iterating upon it. It's been an almost data-free environment of discovery and then general adoption and, and major two or three companies sort of driving global adoption of template designs for orthopedic trauma in particular. What, what happens in that is you get surgeons and, and all hospital people that are very familiar with certain designs and their purpose. So a generative design sort of throws all that out the window, right? It does things in a very fast period of time, but those things are also not very familiar to a surgeon that has to use them. And they may see the structural integrity, say, like, that they think is a requirement and they see your generative design and the confidence sometimes is not there underpinning you know, the design of that product. So what this all boils down to is that what we're arriving at is that we want to take the benefits that generative design offers in terms of improvement in performance and probably it's, we're looking at a 5 to 10% improvement in the performance of these specific medical devices and how they interact with patients. And those are things like improvement in fixation points, biomechanical loading, vasculature preservation, bone and soft tissue preservation, things that they've been trying to do with existing designs, but it's just taken years and years and years to, to get there, right? So that, that's all good stuff that we want more of. But then where we, we, where we really need to do things is to sort of have designs that are also familiar to the operators and the users of those products. Uh, and rather than in general design, each iteration produces a new product. Now that product in terms of the data set that we used is much more useful if we can feed it back into the algorithm and we can take that within a design envelope that I was talking about before. And so we're using that as an opportunity. The design envelope and the regulatory process that we've been given for us is an opportunity to capture that feedback and to iterate that back into the algorithm and improve it. And so we think generative design has a very strong role and we produced implants that were purely based on generative design and they looked, we called one the octopus, so that, you know, it looked like an octopus and, and biomechanically in the software, it was a superior implant to anything that, were, that was going for it, for that particular patient, for that particular application. But the surgeon was just sort of, you know, it was incomprehensible in the general use. Mm. So, so it was a generalizable product, which is what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I guess with generative design, you, you have a couple of parameters, you bash in, you know, save me this amount of weight. 
have, make it this amount of strong? And the answer you get back, you know, it, it's an answer to that. It's not an answer to does this thing look incomprehensible. Actually, that's a good point. So it is there is a reductive quality to generative design that, that re, there's a removal of materials and, and extra, what's seen as extraneous engineering components to a design, right? And so you're right, it does sort of, it is that reductive sort of element. Obviously what you're doing I consider very much part of manufacturing, you know, the, the manufacturing requires design, requires IP, requires, you know, everything including production. Production though, I'd like to know more about that. Are you making things in Australia and do you plan to do more of that? Yeah, our partners are all in Australia. Uh, However, we do have one of the largest uh, manufacturers, orthopedic manufacturers in Asia, which is our manufacturing partner, uh, effectively an OEM manufacturer. So that means they're a contract sort of mm -hmm. manufacturer and the design, but the design templates we use are all generic. So they're all off pattern. Unfortunately in Australia, even um, generic products are, are as expensive. Like there's not really a cost reduction that's significant associated with those generic designs. And we feel that this is the value add that we're trying to create is taking generic designs and then customising those to the individual and that doing that using the existing products that, that are on the shelf. So that's the current program that Hi-Fi Ortho is involved with. We are also manufacturing things uh, with partners in uh, ACT and New South Wales that involve additive manufacturing processes. Mm -hmm. And we, look, we have biomaterial and carbon fibre-based applications as well, which are less clear within the regular, regulatory pathway today, but they will be sort of the future biomaterials and products that will form specific orthopaedic implants in the future. So we have a current business that sort of focuses on existing mm. products and implants that are generic, and then the future products. Ultimately, the software is driving that, and the software that we're developing will be able to take us forward in terms of whatever manufacturing process is best in class at that given time, whether it's now or in the future. So. As a last question, I'd just like to ask you a recurring uh, question that comes up in this series. Why do you believe it's important for Australia to have a strong manufacturing ecosystem? I was CEO and created Equinox just before COVID and really a shift in many things that were uh, becoming the expectation or the expected status quo in terms of manufacturing where you had decentralised uh, manufacturing that might be offshore, and you had sort of value add capabilities and sort of a service overlay that sort of was being focused on. I think the, the fragility of that sort of setup was really clearly highlighted in you know, 2020 and 2021 where we were involved in a lot of the PPE, uh, protective equipment supply uh, here, mostly because of my existing manufacturer relationships in Asia. And what became clear as we tried to set up industrial processes here is that, that we were missing key elements that were, say, plastics, making, taking petrochemical products and making them into plastics that then needed to form the basis for spun-bonded polymers, that then needed to form the basis for, you know, the gowns and masks and various other things that were manufactured. And when you're missing or you're very depleted in several, and we were and remain extremely depleted in several of those capabilities, you know, it's not really possible to ensure manufacturing end-to-end. -end. So I do think that... You know, it's important that we find industries that are self-sustaining in Australia, but also look at opportunities to provide export opportunities for our manufacturing to make it more viable. People talk a lot about you know, the size of the market here, but we do have uh, great export markets in proximity with Pacific partners, for example, in terms of medical healthcare. We should be a major player and exporter there. 
uh, in terms of medical tourism and people coming to have surgical operations and things performed. You know, Australia is a great destination for that. So, but in order to do that, you know, the value chain needs to sit here. So I do believe that very strongly, and all of um, you know, my partners in Equinox and in HiFi are big believers in uh, that. And really the future in manufacturing, the additive manufacturing, will be devolved as well and will be more amenable, I believe, to Australia as a, as a, as a base of operation. But in order to do that, we need the investment now and we need to be able to you know, lead in the technology space all the way through from the material design to the software implementation and all the way through to the hardware, the, the, the nuts and bolts of additive manufacturing. And that's you know, where other countries have really excelled. And you, know, you need to look at you know, China, for example, in their 2025 statement, 3D printing and manufacturing was one of the core pillars in their entire economic growth strategy. You know, that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. So whether that's industry or specific types of future industry, that needs to really be like the core focus and then delivered upon, basically. So look, I think we're, we're there. We've got great talent and great teams and ingenuity and all those good things. And um, yeah, it's now just about building on the resource that's going to drive the actuality. Otherwise, it just goes back to 2019. Mm. So it's an opportunity. That's <clears throat> how we should view it, I believe. Philip Creeley, thank you very much for being on AU Manufacturing Conversations. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.